Hey, welcome. Good evening. We gather here today for another communal meditation session. End question and answer. Question and answer. Opportunity. Many people come here just to ask questions or hear, hear answers, which is appropriate. This is a special sort of practice session. We're not just sitting quietly. We're sitting quietly and listening. And discussing and considering the Dhamma. So it shouldn't be the way you always practice. You shouldn't make it a habit of turning on some Dhamma talk every time you sit down to meditate. Because there's a different purpose here. The purpose is not simply to delve deeper into your understanding of reality, but to correct and adjust your your delving, to refine and to straighten out our practice. It's one of the cautions about intensive practice. We often have this sort of magical thinking about especially about things like meditation because we live in conceptual reality we we perceive things conceptually the thing about concepts is they're atomic atomic meaning they they're indivisible so when you say i'm meditating you think of it as indivisible something that doesn't need to be qualified that is immutable I'm meditating. Uh, it's binary. Either you are or you aren't. And so we think, if I do hours and hours of meditation, then I've, I've accumulated a certain number of atoms, a certain number of billiard balls, a certain number of currency. And it, thinking of it like currency, instead of a $60, I got 60 minutes of meditation. But I've Anyone experienced in mindfulness meditation knows that this isn't at all accurate. The The currency you gain is very much dependent not on the minutes, but on the moments, on the quality of the moments. You certainly gain from those moments, but you can't say I'm meditating and and, and just expect it to be always a gain. There has to be a quality of mind. And different qualities of mind will have different results. And so the point of straightening out our meditation practice is that when someone does, for example, as I said, as a caution in regards to intensive meditation practice, if someone does intensive practice, 
without guidance. It's very easy to have the quality of meditation veer off into something potentially unbeneficial. Especially the most common is that we tend to have a, a, a fix-it mentality or any problem that comes up we want to fix it and so we start to develop tricks. If we're distracted we find some way to make ourselves not distracted. If we're unhappy we make find some way to make ourselves happy. And this happens in meditation even more so than anywhere else. So often I hear from meditators who I meet week after week, I hear about their tricks, <laughs> the, the tricks they've tried to pull on themselves. I mean, that may be unkind, but it, um, the, the methods, the solutions to the problems, and we're not trying to solve our problems. Again, we're, not trying, to, we're trying to not see things as problems anymore. We have to shift our, our perspective to see things as experiences, as things. No? They're just things. They're things first. They're experiences first. And so that's more basic. But and nonetheless, it's a habit. It's hard to break and it's easy to slip back into. And so it quite often takes a an outside observer to point out that you're you're just tricking yourself and it's not going to last because it, it cultivates the, the fix-it mentality and then instead of facing things you are constantly trying to find some way to get rid of them to change them and that, ha that attitude is one of bias and aversion it's unsustainable because you are not Mr. Fix-It or Miss Fix-It. You are not the fixer. You are not in charge of the universe. be nice if you were, but you're not. All you're in charge of is your universe. You're in charge of your observation of the universe. Your reactions to it. And that's where our real power lies. Anyway. Not to, to get off track, but in a good way. But to get back on track, the point being that the point of this session is to help people get on get back on track, to help straighten out our practice and to bring the mind to the very, very fine line that we call the middle way. It's a fine line between indulgence and avoidance, indulgence and self-torture. So to that end, I'm here to talk about the Dhamma and answer questions about the Dhamma. Shraddha is here as, always, as usual to help. wasn't here on Saturday. Life is impermanent that way. So no expectations. We'll try to be here Wednesdays and Saturdays. That's the plan. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 
3 p.m. Eastern, but that could all change. I could die tonight. You all could too. Aduang mejiwitang. My life is unstable, unsure. It's not a sure thing. Duang maranang. You know it's a sure thing. Death is a sure thing. We just don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how. We don't know where our body's going, we don't know where our mind's going when we die. But we do know we're going to die. Janami. Janami at Janami. I know, but I don't know. There are things I know, there are things I don't know. All right, so do we have any questions? If not, we can just sit here and practice mindfully. We do have some questions. Um, this one I think is about this Q&A session. Is this only for inside meditation? Yes, it is. We don't. Use, I don't like to use the word insight so much. It's a bit misleading. It's not really what the word vipassana means. It's not a bad word, it's just a little misleading because we use it in English to imply some sort of revelatory knowledge. And that's not quite what vipassana. Vipassana means to see clearly. So instead of insight, it's clear sight. And that has a different implication. It's not so much that we give rise to some new knowledge it's that our knowledge of things, our understanding of things, becomes more clear. It clears up our misunderstandings, which is insight, but better to think of it as seeing clearly. But yes, this is for a very specific tradition. If you want to learn about our tradition, you're welcome to read. We have a booklet on how to meditate. The link should be in the description. We try to answer here questions about meditation practice. Again, the basic criteria for whether we're going to answer a question is whether the answer is important for the med for the questioner. If we if it seems like it would be important for them to have an answer in order to help them in their practice, we're not terribly interested in indulging people's curiosities and speculations and we're not so interested in teaching theory, not here. If you're interested in Buddhist theory, we have a study group every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. You're welcome to join by going to our Discord channel. Everything is free, we don't charge, so don't worry about that. You're welcome to get involved as you like. Speaking of free, we have a free at-home meditation course. If you're in, really interested in learning how to meditate, you can sign up for that going to our website. If you wonder how can we do all of this for free, well, we do get donations, but I don't. I don't even. I'm not interested in even mentioning that. 
The real point is, how do we do it for free? Because of our, our own self-interest. We're greedy. We're greedy in that we want we want goodness. We want to be better people. We want to purify our minds. And so we do this out of greed. Well, that's not fair, but I'm being facetious. Not out of greed, but out of self-interest, really. We help others because of it being the right thing to do. The right thing to do is so much more right than we think it is. If you really find the right thing to do, it's the most happy and pleasant and peaceful thing you can ever do. That's the point. Find what leads to happiness and leads to peace and then do that. Helping others isn't important. It's a, it's a part of that. It doesn't, doesn't have to be. For some people, you can just, depending on your circumstance, just practice on your own. But helping others is is a part of what leads to peace and happiness. So that's why we do this. That's why it can continue. Physical pain is really difficult to accept. I know that meditation won't get rid of the pain, but how can it help cope with it? Will it help the pain decrease at some point? Some pain will decrease, some of it, because some pain is based on stress, but that's not, not at all the point, because some pain, is some even excruciating pain, is going to be impossible to change. Difficult to accept is, is an important point. I mean, it makes it one of the most core problems that we're trying to address. And the way we address it is by, try, by adjusting our perception of it. So we no longer see it as a problem. Rather than trying to accept the pain, try and understand it. Try and see it clearly. Approach it as an object to be understood. And approach your your reactions to the pain as independent phenomena. They are not the pain. The pain is not the reaction. And so note them separately. Don't refer back to the pain as being the cause of your reaction. The cause of your reaction is delusion, ignorance. And so when you see clearly about the pain and see clearly about the reaction... You free yourself from that. Try and see them both clearly. How can one practice a Buddhist path while still working and having a family? I find it difficult at times to stay mindful although I've only been at this for about eight months. So that's a good point. You've only been at it for about eight months, which is a great amount of time. I mean, it's great to hear that you've been doing it for so long, but it really isn't that long in the broad, in the large scheme, greater scheme of things. Uh, and and all that, really all that means is don't expect it to be easy for two reasons. First, because eight months isn't, much in comparison to how long you've had to develop your bad habits, your habits of unmindfulness and so on. And two, because it's meant to be a challenge. 
mindfulness is challenging. So don't expect it to be easy, otherwise it wouldn't challenge you. It wouldn't help you to change, help you to see things more 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 peacefully, see things more clearly, and in a, in a more peaceful and positive, beneficial way. Practicing Buddhism is compatible with working and having a family to a great extent. Ultimately, if you go far enough, you'll you'll be more inclined to give up family and work and so on. But there's nothing about those things that make it impossible to practice mindfulness. Just make it difficult, as you can see. Difficult isn't impossible. It's a good mantra to remember. Difficult is not impossible. Don't be discouraged by difficulty. It's adversity that tames you. Adversity that trains you. Oftentimes, I get a terrible headache during meditation. Initially, I put it down to poor breathing or forgetting to breathe. Is this a common experience in beginner practice? So don't go looking in general, general principle. Don't go looking for causes for things. It's not useful. It's not really interesting. Because all that does is incline you to change, to fix things. And we're not interested in fixing. We're trying to understand. When you have a headache, what you're trying to understand is that it's just pain. It's an experience. There's no head. There's only the ache. Because if there's a head, then it can be worrisome. Is something wrong with my head? Is, am I gonna, is something going to be wrong with my head? It's not actually real. What's real is the ache. That's an experience. When people ask things like, is it a common experience, they're often concerned that maybe there's something wrong with them. And again, that's a part of the problem, seeing things as a problem or being worried about things. If you're worried, say worried, worried. We're not interested in whether things are common or uncommon. It doesn't matter. What we're interested in is the fact that it happened. And when it happens, it uh, it becomes the object of your awareness If it's the object of your awareness You take it as an object You try and see it simply for what it is One thing that you're going to see in, medit in mindfulness meditation If you go far enough And if you continue with it Is that everything is an uncommon experience you're continuously having uncommon experiences. You'll be surprised continuously by the way things change. And asking whether things are common, normal, is a reaction to that. It's, it's something that you have to overcome. You have to learn to be able to adapt and accommodate and um, accept change as a part of reality. Not, not accept it as being a, a good thing or an okay thing but to not react to it, to, to rise above change, to get to the point where change doesn't phase you anymore, where you don't worry about whether it's abnormal, because you know, you come, you come to a point where you understand impermanence so clearly uh, that you have, no, you have no expectations about reality. You, you understand that anything could happen, 
within not exactly anything but for all intents and purposes anything meaning something you don't know could happen something you don't expect could happen in the next moment it's unpredictable it's, a, it's an important realization in meditation the unpredictability of things So don't be discouraged or concerned about things like headaches, even if they're terrible. Terrible is just a reaction. Of course, some pains and aches are caused by actual injuries. And so practically speaking, you want to be um, somewhat alert to the potential for things like you know, disease, injury, and so on doesn't mean you just go all gung-ho and forget about that, but you have to strike a balance there and make sure that you're not getting paranoid. Most, For the most part, pain is just pain. And for the most part, meditation does free you from a lot of pain, but more importantly, it frees you from the reactions to the pain. When I meditate, I will focus on the pain that arises, but many times it comes up in multiple places. As a beginner, do I choose one area to focus on or do I focus on the pain as a whole? If there's one area that's most prevalent, you can focus on that. If you want to focus generally on pain as a whole, you can just say pain, pain. You can just note it as a whole. It's not that important. It's not like it's a magic wand that's going to make pain go away. It's just trying to remind you that pain is pain, so you don't react to it. So wherever your mind goes, try and note that. I've been struggling to sleep. When I try I lie and my mind wanders to troubles and before I know it, I'm upset and agitated. Any advice? So struggling to sleep is a real problem. It's something that you have to try and correct. Instead of struggling to sleep, try and be mindful of the struggling, the desire to sleep, the upset that you're not sleeping, the worry and the fear and so on. The upset, the agitation, try and note that. Try and get it out of your head that you have to sleep. Don't take that approach to things because that doesn't help your sleep. That isn't a beneficial or useful sort of state. Try and meditate, do some rising, falling. You can take the frame, the, the take the mindset of being okay if you have with with having to stay up all night. Even if I don't sleep tonight, I'll be okay because I'll be mindful. Don't be discouraged if you can't sleep. Just continue trying to be as mindful and as peaceful and as focused and as clear as you can. And you find that you can actually be quite alert in the morning.
all I want to do is meditate when I have nothing to do. Is that an attachment? I mean, it can be. I can't say much about your situation, but if you want something, you have to say wanting. Want to meditate, say wanting. But it's a slippery word because if it just means that you inclined, you say, oh, I should meditate now, and then you go and meditate, that's that's nothing. That's not really wanting. But if you are doing something and, and you crave to do it, you, oh, I wish I could be meditating, that's wrong. That's a problem. Instead, try and be mindful of whatever it is that you're doing as best you can. Is meditation enough to purify the mind? How will books and Dhamma talks help? So books and Dhamma talks help you teach you about meditation. Again, meditation isn't atomic, it isn't a thing. You say you're meditating, you ask about meditation. Even, even this question, you have to understand that you, 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 it can't be answered until you define what you mean by meditation. But that's a common problem is people will think, okay, I, I'm just going to do meditation. know nothing about it, but I'm going to do it. And what does that mean? Well, I'll sit down and Meditate. You have to understand that that's meaningless. It means now you're sitting. You're sitting down, maybe with your eyes closed, maybe in a specific posture. Doesn't mean anything. Or it means very little. And so Dhamma talks and books are going to teach you something called meditation, which is really a way of directing your mind. And they'll teach you different ways of directing your mind, different ways of... Uh, comporting yourself of establishing the mind setting up the mind in a certain way and so there are certain ways of doing that that purify the mind not all of them do and some of them do probably better than others some of them are more far-reaching in their purification some are going to be more purifying for certain people than they are for others. So you have to qualify that. And now you can maybe see how books and Dhamma talks help. Because they will help you to qualify what you mean by meditation. My views on the world changed after I started practicing meditation and mindfulness and the Buddhist teaching, and sometimes I feel scared and lonely. I meditate to them, but I see no clear understanding. I guess the question is any advice? Well, you say your views on the world changed, so that's clear understanding, hopefully. Hopefully they changed for the better. Mm. Maybe they changed for the worse if you're scared and lonely. No, I mean, 
sometimes waking up can be a scary thing and make you feel lonely. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the new views are a problem. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate or if you're interested in doing a meditation course in our tradition, but again, I meditate doesn't tell me a lot because it really all depends how you're meditating and whether you have guidance and support. Since starting to practice non-attachment, I think about giving up everything and not engaging in society. Is this something I should pursue or is it better to continue a Buddhist path in society? I mean, there's really nothing better about continuing a Buddhist path in society. I can't think of anything better about it. So all other things being equal, reducing your involvement with society is probably preferable. You should still engage with good society in the sense of finding people who can support you in your practice and who are who are, have a mutual interest in the practice and that sort of thing. Finding a teacher would be a good thing, someone who can guide you and lead you through a course of meditation. But apart from that, engaging in society isn't nearly as beneficial as we tend to think it is. We end up being a part of the problem more than anything. A lot of the problems in society would be solved if everyone just chilled out, stopped getting so involved. The problem is, I guess, that we, the, a lot of the people who get involved are engaging in it's too complicated because people are engaging in bad things. It's a thorny subject. It's gonna. I don't want to misstep here because there's no question that the people who are most involved in government and society seem to be causing a lot of problems. But I think it's misleading. I think it's fair to say that we help society, we help the situation by providing a good example, by providing peace to those around us because we pervade, we uh, exude peace when we are peaceful, right? We don't exist as an island even when we pull back from society. We interact still with people, but we interact in a way that is not inflammatory, that is not stress-inducing. So rather than going out to parties and enjoying ourselves or playing games and so on, we engage with people in this sort of way, asking and answering questions, talking about the Dhamma, practicing meditation together. 
that changes society for the better. I don't want to criticize or speak badly about pro the protesters. I know there's a lot of protest in the world going on now. I just think that a lot of the anger that comes from these sorts of movements is inflammatory and isn't actually a part of the solution. You see, sometimes, many times, saying, speaking out is an important part of setting boundaries with society, so leaving society. When someone comes out, theoretically a protest is in a way potentially a, a leaving behind society. You know, it can be considered a very good and Buddhist activity if it's done peacefully because it's a means of denying the, the way society is going. So it doesn't mean you just go off in the forest and don't interact. It means you stop buying in to society, stop buying into what the government is doing, stop buying into the economy and what the corporations are doing. If that involves standing on a street corner with a sign, then I think potentially that could be a proper practice. I don't think that's about engaging. But you engage when you get angry when you partake. Someone came to the Buddha once and was very angry. And the Buddha said to him, asked him, if someone comes to you with a gift and you don't accept the gift, who does the gift belong to? It still belongs to the person giving, the giver. And the same, when, you, when someone gets angry and you don't get angry back, they partake in... in they partake alone. And so let everyone let the let the angry people be angry. We will not be angry here. Let the greedy and lustful people be greedy and lustful. We will not be lustful and greedy here. Let the arrogant, the conceited, the manipulative, let them all be that. We will not be, we will not partake. And that's a real protest, that's a real counterculture, that's a real sort of thing that changes society without engaging with it. You don't engage with the problems. You stand for what is right. That's what I think. Monte, how can one meditate on insult? Well, if someone's busy insulting you, you just say hearing, hearing. If it's a memory of an insult, you say remembering. If you react to the to something that you perceive as an insult, you know, the reaction, disliking or angry or stressed or so on. Sad.
Bhante, how do I see the break when eye consciousness stops and ear consciousness starts? With practice, and don't go specifically looking for that. Try and note things as they arise and as they cease, and you'll start to see them more clearly arising and ceasing. Don't think theoretically about concepts like that, like the break. Just try and just look, you know. You want to see what's real, don't go in expecting what you're going to see. Look, and whatever's real you'll see. Meditation just provides you a way of seeing more clearly and more precisely. I'm going back to some of the questions I skipped earlier. How do you deal with someone, in this case a partner, who constantly brings up a question or questions something over and over again that I've asked her to let go? You deal with your own experiences and your own reactions. You deal with people by speaking the truth when it's clear that they don't know the truth and that's about it if it's not clear that they don't know the truth or if it doesn't or also if it doesn't seem like they're going to be interested in hearing the truth then you have nothing to say you don't have to deal with them at all deal with your own reactions hearing hearing if you're angry say angry if you're frustrated or dislike it you're stressed, anxious, afraid, depressed. Stop asking people to let go of things. Let go yourself. There will be some non-meditation questions. How do I find friends in college as a strict Buddhist? Find Buddhist friends. Start a Buddhist society, that's what I did. You'd be surprised. Start a Buddhist society, sometimes you'll find friends you never would have thought of having as friends. troubles past of drugs I'm sober for a while practicing good things I have tattoos that represent my past are these a problem towards my desire to become a monk after college should I just detach from the idea and realize that it's only true on conventional reality or work to remove them beforehand so there is a, uh, a condition that a monk, uh, an applicant from, an, from monkhood can't be tattooed, but it was specifically, I think, dealing with someone who was tattooed as a criminal. So they had this practice of tattooing someone on their forehead 
with a mark that showed that they were a thief or a murderer or something. And the Buddha wouldn't allow for for social and political reasons, just because of how it would be problematic for the mona for the monastic monastic lineage to accept someone like that. It was said that they shouldn't be ordained as a monk. If you've voluntarily been tattooed or tattooed yourself, the general consensus is that it's still okay to ordain. I once had someone want to become a monk who had uh, huge Catholic crosses on their arms. And, maybe and then a big tattoo on his chest. We debated for a bit about the crosses. Because it was no longer about the tattoos, it was now a religion thing, right? They had religious symbolism from another religion on their arms. and I think we eventually decided to let them, but they didn't end up making it. They became a novice and then decided that the alms round was unpleasant. They felt it was unpleasant that they should be taking food from people. So they still had that sort of self-consciousness. It's quite humbling to take, accept food from people. How can letting go help solve help to solve problems? Well, really, letting go makes it so that it's no longer a problem. Seeing something as a problem is is generally a sort of clinging, a bias. So when you let go, you have no problems. Things you thought were problems are no longer problems. That's really how it works. I mean, there's more practical ways because it helps you see situations more clearly and so it, it, it appears that it allows you to solve problems better. That's not really the goal. The goal isn't to solve practical, mundane problems. The goal is, again, to get to the point where there are no problems. Even your problems aren't problems. These questions I'm not sure about, but I'll ask them decide when practicing under a buddhist monk can one be affected by their teacher's karma karma means action so if the monk hits you over the head you'll be affected by it that's a karma if you mean affected by their uh, situation which might be a cause by a cause a result of their past deeds can you be affected by that? Uh, not explicitly, no. But you'll be affected by their situation uh, indirectly. If it's a rich teacher because of good things they've done, then you'll have a comfortable living place when you go to visit the teacher, that sort of thing. I mean, a lot of... obviously... Otherwise, I'm not quite sure. If you just mean in some magical sense of suppose... Suppose your teacher do, uh, so suppose your teacher does something evil, like kills someone or tortures someone or lies and cheats and steals or whatever. Will you be affected by that, 
Well, let's be more, more pleasant. Suppose the teacher does a lot of good things. Will you be affected by that? Yes, indirectly, if, if they get more friends, then you'll have more people who can become your friends as well. If people are nicer to them, they'll generally be nicer to you by association. It's just a part of how the universe is outside of our control and affects us in many different ways. So what we can do is choose as our karma, choose where and who we associate with. If you associate with good people, you'll get a good reputation, but that's your own fault. It's because you decided to associate with a good person. If you choose to associate with a bad person, people will see you in a bad light, but that's your own fault because you chose to associate with a bad person. So our karma has is limited, but it's what we have some say over. I was stressed at work today and I felt anger. So I noted angry, angry, and it took me, took about 45 minutes before it subsided. I was wondering, was that correct application of noting outside the sitting practice? That sounds like a wonderful application of noting outside of sitting practice. Good for you. You see, because without that noting, you're going to be doing something else in the mind. This is the point. It's meant as a substitute for other sorts of thoughts, like having to do something about the anger or often trying to assuage it with some sort of pleasant experience, some distraction. Being able to stay with it gives you strength. It takes away the power of the anger to lead you to do and say things as a result of it. And so its power over you, over you has been reduced. If you continue that, there becomes this disconnect between your anger and the, the anger and your reactions to it, or or your subsequent actions. So, whereas before they were very much connected, when you had anger, the next thing you did would be very much based on it. Now that you're disconnecting from it, next time when you feel angry, you'll be less um, influenced by it in terms of the steps that you take in response. That's what noting noting just breaks the causal chain. So instead of I'm angry, I should do this, I'm angry, and that's it. I often have vivid music looping in my mind. And during meditation, it is like a radio playing next to me. When it's very loud, I try to make it the meditation object without actively adding to it. But it always seems to slip away when I look at it directly. I sometimes feel like a dog chasing its tail. Should I do my best to simply note it and move on? Well, noted, knowing that watching things cease is important. So no, if it goes, if you say hearing and it's gone, then go back to meditation. You don't have to try and force it or, or you know force your like. 
really what you you, you you say I try to make it a meditation object without actively it sounds like there's maybe too much force involved like control involved all you do is when you hear the sound in your mind is say to yourself hearing you don't have to try anything just say hearing, hearing it's just reminding you that sound if you like it or dislike it note those as well and that's it if it goes, if it stays, if it stays, just keep noting it. If it doesn't stay, go back to your meditation practice. Bhante, what practice should I do in the last five minutes before dying natural death? Mindfulness, absolutely. So if you haven't read our booklet, you can learn about how we describe meditation practice, mindfulness practice. If you're interested, you can take an at-home course to learn how. Even do an intensive course if you can find a way. And then that's the sort of practice you'd want to do when you're dying for sure. What about old age, sickness, and death? How should we face them correctly? I think that's the same answer. Wanted um, there are some other non-meditation questions. Is there any point in being a poet? Serious question. Yeah, there's not really a point in anything. The point in being, there's no point in being anything. I have to be a little more clear about what you find interesting about being a poet. What What's the interesting part of it? Because being a poet, it's not even real. Being a poet means calling yourself a poet and telling other people to call you a poet or having other people call you a poet. That's all it is. It's nothing intrinsic to you. If you're trained in poetry and in, in being a poet, then you have certain habits of mind, and that's what we could talk about. We could say, are those habits involved with uh, producing poetry? Are they good or bad? Suppose they're not either. Poetry could be a means of disseminating information, remembering information. The problem often is, quite often is, of course, is that there's enjoyment with poetry or evoking certain emotions, which, you know, wanting those emotions to arise is productive of attachment, clinging. And so that's a problem. A lot of poetry, most poetry probably falls into that category. But not all. Poetry can be very useful as a mnemon uh, mnemonic device means of remembering things. Turning things into verse was used by the Buddha and his students to rem help remember things. It's a very old tool for memorization. Turn it into a verse. It's probably a big reason why poetry and so poetry became a common means of 
passing on stories. Why we see old stories in poetry is because it was useful for helping to pass it on. Repetition and meter and so on. I wasn't sure about this question, but they say it's very important to them. They've said, please answer it. Uh, when I focus on my breath, there is a spirit who I know personally who directs her energy to my heartbeat, not allowing me to meditate. No, trying to bully us into answer your questions, huh? I don't know about that. I don't know what the question is. That's no, not a bad question, I don't think. I'm just teasing. So, you may, if you say focus on your breath, it, it gives the hint that you might not be practicing according to our techniques. So that's the first thing I'd recommend is, if you want my help, try and practice according to our technique. We have a booklet that describes it. There's also not a question here. So you're asking us to ask, answer your question. You haven't even answered a, asked a question yet. Mm. So, we're f uh, no hard feelings, but be a little more mindful here. If you want us to answer your question, you need to ask one. And most importantly, is you ask one that's you that's important. Ask the question that's going to give you an answer. That's going to help you become free from suffering. Of course, an answer like, what should I do? That's probably the question. And that's okay. The other question is, what should I do? Well, I think I would stick to, well, two things. Stick to what I said about practicing the, the technique that we, te that we encourage, we practice take up that practice. And the second thing is to send good thoughts. If there's beings who are disturbing you, you should send them friendly thoughts. May they be happy. May they be free from suffering. That's a useful thing to do. Those two things, I think, are your answer. I'm interested to join the at-home course. Is it okay if I use Skype on my mobile phone? Are you following Eastern Standard Time? Yes, yes to both of those. You don't have to be in Eastern Standard Time. There's different time slots that are all set for Eastern, but I think it gives you time zone conversions for your local time zone. So you can just go to our site and figure out which time zone works for you, but but yes, I'm in the eastern time zone, so the official times for the slots are in eastern time, and it's eastern daylight savings time right now, so you have to be aware of that, for when the time changes again, you're going to have to adjust on your own, I don't adjust, I mean, I adjust my time here, but whatever my clock says, that's what the meaning is, so you have to figure out what my clock's going to say, it's the only way we can do it. 
Monte, I think if they set their time, when they set up the profile, if they set their time correctly, it adjusts automatically. I mean, right. their time, time will zone. change, but it'll show them. Your profile has a time zone in it. You set that to your time zone and it'll adjust appropriately. How important is celibacy in the spiritual journey? It becomes more important the further you go. It's not perhaps the first thing you should concern yourself with. But once you get interested in mindfulness, it, mindfulness it's certainly something you should consider, at least from time to time. And if you're interested in going further, even if you don't become a monk, celibacy can be a really useful tool. <coughs> you don't want to put it at the forefront, though. Suppose you become celibate without a depth of practice, it can just be repressive because you're not actually equipped to deal with your emotions. So don't do it without practicing meditation. That just leads to disaster. How important is it to understand dependent origination? I don't really have an answer for that question. If there's something you want to know, you can ask. Bhante, would you like to answer questions about kasina meditation? No, it's nine o'clock. Yeah. Would I generally? Mm, no. If you want to learn about theory and so on, you're welcome to come to our study group Saturday morning. Thank you all. Thank you for coming and listening. May you all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering.